So there's nothing more powerful than saying to somebody, you're doing it right, feel it, feel what it feels like to be doing that right, tune into the muscle memory of that, and now let's do it wrong. And when you get them to go back to doing it wrong, in an instant, they can feel exactly why they've come to you in the first place to help them improve their stroke. They can feel it straight away. That triathlon show, 188. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Paul Newsom, who is the head coach and founder of SwimSmooth, which I'm sure many of you will be familiar with already, especially since I interviewed Paul in a two-part episode back in episodes 132 to 133, and I'll link to those in the show notes and episode description, of course, so you can go and have a listen to those as well. We could honestly have made this interview too into a two-part episode because we go on for quite a long time. But I think it's a good thing because Paul really does go in-depth on the swim types system that he has identified. And in that system, you will hear about what the descriptions for each swim type is and you might recognize yourself immediately in that description but the best part then is that Paul goes on to discuss the stroke correction and improvement process for each swim type so that you can you can take some notes or just go to the show notes of course and uh, learn what you should do uh, with your given particular swim type. We'll get right into the interview after thanking our sponsors. First we have Precision Hydration and they have a great blog post that I want to mention and actually link to. It's called Should Your Hydration Strategy Change As You Get Older? And essentially, the Cliff Notes version of the post is that as you age, your sensation of thirst is diminished. You tend to lose more water through urine and you have less water on board to start with. So dehydration is a much greater risk once you're older. So there's a great blog post, as I said, on precision hydration Dot com about this topic which i'll link to and there you can go and read more about what the practical uh, applications is how should you tackle this in your training and racing and even day-to-day -day, uh, planning for hydration and nutrition if you want to try precision hydration's electrolyte products for free you can get your first box or tube with the promo code that triathlon show all one word all caps on precisionhydration.com and big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. So I want to do a quick reminder for you all of Roka's business model. It's a direct-to-consumer model, which of course is great because it removes the markup that you would have if you would buy their stuff in, in retail stores. So from a budgeting perspective, at least this is absolutely fantastic. You just buy stuff in their online store. They ship from both the US and from Europe and they have a no-hassles return policy. So it really works out perfectly. You get best-in-class equipment for prices that are considerably more affordable than, than best-in-class prices. Check them out on roca.com and use the promo code TTS, all caps, to get 20% off your entire order. Now, without any further ado, let's welcome Paul Newsom from SwimSmooth. Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, Paul. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me on again. 
It's a great pleasure and uh, thank you for the great course that uh, you just uh, held in Mallorca, uh, the swim, uh, free day coaching, swim coaching education course uh, that, uh, that I attended that was absolutely fantastic. I learned a ton and it was uh, great to, to get to, to know you and, uh, and Adam and all the, the coaches that attended as well in, in person. So, so that was uh, a really great free day that I really appreciated. Great, great. Now, we really uh, enjoyed having you along there, uh, Michael. And, and actually, enough, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, because we it was so inundated with popularity, uh, we ended up having to run a second three-day course the following week. So we had six days off between them and did the second course. And somebody had actually applied for that second course and then realized you were coming on the first course and uh, knew of your fame through the uh, through this podcast and, uh, and specifically asked to switch from the second course to the first so he could actually meet you directly. So, uh, yeah, it was great to have you uh, as part of that, uh, that, that course over there in New York and i'm uh, really glad you enjoyed your time yeah it was it was funny a few people they did comment that uh, they recognized my voice voice when i started talking from the from having listened to the podcast so so that was uh, that was an interesting thing that i haven't experienced before um so yeah to today's topic we have talked a lot obviously you were in episodes 132 and 133 a long two-part interview where we talked a lot about swim training the structure of swim training and we did touch upon the topic that we'll dive deep into today which is swim types but that is more on the technical side of of swimming how to improve your stroke what are the different flaws that may be present in a swimmer's stroke and can you talk about the concept of swim types first of all uh, refresh our memories what is that yeah, absolutely. So um, you actually visited us on our 29th three-day Swim Smooth Coach Education course. And the the very first course was when we actually released the Swim Type System. So that was way back in June 2010 now in Birmingham in the UK. At that point, the concept was very, very new indeed. I'd actually been working on it with Adam for around about 18 months or two years. And I remember telling him about it the first time. And he's like, that's nuts. No one's going to go for that. No one's going to be interested in, in that whole idea. And the concept which I went through to him with was the idea that I'd, I'd been doing a lot of video analysis. And I've actually now, Michael, to this date, done 21 years of video analysis. And uh, I'm seeing on average, um, just from my one-to-one sessions, about 350 to 400 uh, individual one-to-one sessions per year. Um, so, you know, numbering more than one per day. And then we get the um, the number of uh, swimmers on these clinics when I took you guys through that. Uh, we had 30 swimmers on that particular course, 20 coaches, 10 swimmers. So the numbers are really, really racking up. And this was back in 2008 um, when Adam first joined me over in Perth. That's uh, Adam Young, obviously you know, co-founder with, uh, with Swim Smooth. He joined me over here and I said, look, I, I'm one of these guys, Michael, who just loves patterns. I like to recognize patterns in, in the way people do all sorts of things. I'm just a very curious sort of a guy, I guess. And having that background in sports and exercise science, um, I wanted to make sense a little bit of what I was seeing on a day-to-day basis and it became apparent to me that I was I guess I was coaching people um, and recognizing certain flaws or faults within their stroke which seemed to be common to um, a group of swimmers let's say or a, a, a type of swimmer and um, the specific one or the first one I really uh, that most of you probably recognize is what we call the Arnie or the Arnett and this is a swimmer who's normally an adult onset swimmer let's call it uh, fairly new to swimming and uh, and just find swimming very very frustrating they might describe themselves as fighting the water and uh, feel like their legs are dragging down and a lot of people might assume well that's everybody isn't it well it's not everybody no because what we end up seeing is that um, what works well to actually improve an Arnie, and I'll dig a little bit more deeper into each of the types in a second, but the point is that 
I was working on this and seeing some of the drills and exercises and things that we've been developing that worked well to develop the Arnie stroke didn't seem to work well for some of our other swimmers who were sitting up much, much higher in the water. So somebody maybe like a, a what we classify as a smooth or a swinger or a kicktastic who generally actually have very, very good body positions. They almost needed a bit of a contrary advice to what uh, we were giving the Arnie. And I think the the whole purpose and the whole motivation really to bring this out was um, ever since I started Swim Smooth in 2004, I very much I tried to uh, practice and preach the whole idea of individuality in coaching swimmers. So there's, you know, people say to us, well, what does a swim smooth stroke look like? And we say, well, there isn't such a thing as a swim smooth stroke because the swim smooth stroke looks different for different people. Uh, the idea being that we're trying to actually coach the individual as opposed to coaching a particular stroke, if that makes sense. So the, that's all well and good in theory, but this notion of individuality is quite hard to then systemize. And, and it's only through this pattern recognition from literally thousands and thousands thousands of hours of video analysis that I started to see some trends and then I sort of cross-referenced that with the drills I was giving with people and uh, and what was working well, what wasn't working quite so well, that I started to formulate it into a bit of a, a bit of a system. And I first broached that with Adam in 2008, as I mentioned, so about 18 months, two years before we actually formally released it. And we did a little bit of a drum, uh, a dry run actually in the UK um, it would have been around about the sort of September of 2008 time and we had a one-day clinic and we just put it out there to the to the swimmers on the course and people like sort of oh, yeah yeah fair enough yeah, yeah you know it wasn't really no it didn't really excite anyone too much at that point we hadn't really formalized the system as such it was more of like amusing like at the end of the day we sort of said oh look you know you're doing this and so-and-so is doing that and that's different to her and this is different to him but uh, but you guys both look the same and this is this is how we'd actually improve you so from that, uh, we went away and worked on it for about 18 months, two years, and actually came up with a very structured process. And uh, initially, that process was based around the physicality of how somebody swims. So, for example, uh, just very briefly, the Arnie tends to sit very low in the water and tends to feel like they're fighting the water. The Bambino tends to feel a little bit nervous and anxious in the water, and you can really see this in their breathing. So the coordination of their breathing almost looks like they're trying to climb out of the water and struggle to take a breath. The Kicktastic sits generally speaking, very, very horizontally in the water. And Kicktastics might say the complete opposite of an Arnie. An Arnie might say they love a wetsuit or they love their pool boy because it basically removes the thing that's actually holding them back and slowing them down the most. Uh, whereas a Kicktastic would find that they actually get slowed down by a pool boy because you remove their leg kick or they feel awkward in a wetsuit because it lifts them too high. We then have the uh, the overglider, which is somebody who tends to have taken the notion that you need to make your stroke as long as you possibly can and to glide as much as you possibly can down the pool. Um, this swimmer has simply overdone that and to the expense of their stroke rate. So they tend to have a, a bit of a rut, if you like, in the nervous system. And uh, it's a very sort of stochastic type of a stroke. Um, and then we saw the the smooth. I think everyone can appreciate a, a very good, smooth-looking freestyle stroke. But I think one of the things that since releasing Swim Types in June of 2010, uh, we started to beat the drum about was to recognize a sixth swim type, which is what we call the swinger. And the, probably the best way that a lot of people tend to think about the, the swinger is somebody who maybe doesn't look that great in the pool, but for some reason seems to swim exceptionally well in the open water. So I was really curious about this because I know from my own experience, that's definitely me. I, I was never, I never once, Michael, did I get picked to uh, to do a demonstration for my for my, uh, for my my coach in the swimming club. He used to describe me as steamboat willy, just turning my arms over at you know, 100 strokes per minute and, uh, and looking like I was flailing around. But the point was that when I got in the open water, somehow I seemed to be 
be out outdoing the my counterparts in the pool, and uh, you know, I seem to be just have this natural uh, affinity for distance freestyle as opposed to sprinting. And I just that's just how I like to swim. I like to swim. I love the idea of drafting. I love the idea of being in a in a tight pack with lots and lots of people. I just really sort of um, tuned into that, if you like. So you know, through those six types, we we released it, like I say, on the first of these three day coach education courses. You did the twenty ninth. We've since had a thirtieth as well. And it's been really interesting uh, releasing that to not just the uh, the coaching fraternity, but obviously the wider swimming world. Because one of our goals behind this was how can we help people self-coach? How can we help people self-diagnose um, exactly where they're at? So let's say, for example, you live 500 miles or 1,000 kilometers, wherever it might be, away from your nearest swimming coach, or it's just not appropriate for you to go down to the swimming club, or maybe even you're a bit nervous of going to a, a local swimming club or to train with a swimming squad or a coach. How can you recognize simply what might be holding you back, but then not only what's holding you back, because I think we can all recognize classic faults within the stroke, but not only how what was holding you back, but then how to try and fix it. And like I say, that's the big motivation behind this. And most of what's since come with swim types have just been, again, born from this curiosity and this idea that, okay, well, we're recognizing how this is working. How are we actually communicating with these swim types as well? Is there any sort of trend in that way? And, you know, I, I know you like your stats, Michael, and uh, and I love mine as well. When we go back, and I believe now my um, we put out a video a few years ago, and um, I think it's back back in about 2013, and we're saying, look, we've got a library here of 5,500 video files. We've now got over 10,000, and really with my team of 50 swim swim coaches dotted around the world would probably at least double that number if you go through it and just from the way i end up speaking to people when i sort of recognize where they're at with their swimming and um, you can almost um, plot it um, or positively correlate the swim type with the amount of time you spend talking to that swim type and you might think well, what the heck you know, what are you going on about here well if we just pick the overglider as a bit of an example the overglider is somebody generally speaking who is very tech technically minded they you know maybe they've got a, an engineering background maybe an accountant maybe somebody who's uh, very much focused on numbers and likes to process likes to analyze and can be guilty of over analyzing sometimes so that when I, when i'm actually giving one of these one-to-one -one analysis sessions that particular person always responds with loads of questions and i love that because i like to sort of tell them you know get them to really understand what they're doing what's holding them back discuss some of the logic behind uh, what they might be doing and why that might help or why whilst it might 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 hinder um so consequently these analysis sessions always go on for ages you know the i think the average time for working with an overglider for a, a video analysis is around about 40 or 45 minutes now if you contrast that with the arnie the arnie tends to be a much more sort of pragmatic or kinesthetic type of learner in the sense that they just want to get into the water and start start working it right away it's like okay i get it i get it i just want to get in and um we often talk um you know a little bit tongue-in-cheek about this idea of having an, an arnie you and the idea is that is when you sat there as a coach, the the Arnie can often be talking to you and just going yep 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 yep, and it's this sense of they just want to rush and just want to get on and get into the to the water. So I think a lot of time that you spend with them, or too much time if you spend with them on the side of the pool, it, it can just be lost, and they don't want to ask too many questions. They just want to get in and get it done. So typical like uh, analysis time with an Arnie would be in the region of about fifteen to twenty minutes. So uh, yeah, so that's a little bit of a, um, a roundup with that. I don't know, Michael, do you want me to go into a little bit more about the specifics of each swim type, perhaps? Yeah, let's just summarize what we have so far. So we have 
six swim types, the Arnie, Bambino, Kicktastic, Overglider. And those are, I guess we can say, the four swim types where there is quite significant room for improvement still. Right. Uh, a lot of, well, everybody probably has some room for improvement, but those are uh, those have, have some specific, I guess, flaws to their stroke that that are common and then that you recognize. And that's what, where these swim types have formed. That's where the pattern recognition comes in. Then we have the smooth and the swinger as the two uh, I guess desirable swing swim types to uh, to strive for for becoming close to to one of those I guess, and then each of these swim types they have their uh, their different types of swimming which uh, includes the positives and and the negatives and and depending on what those things are you have different ways of actually going about correcting their stroke and and starting to improve so it's not a, a one size fits all but most or all swimmers would fit pretty well into one of these six swim types so that's how the system works that's correct yeah i mean there are obvious um scenarios where somebody doesn't fit quite within one of those um uh those boxes if you like and you know the the criticism there would be well surely this is just pigeonholing surely you know everybody um is completely individual and completely and you know we definitely believe in the whole concept of individuality for sure but it, that's a very hard th- uh, concept in terms of systemizing this now we haven't systemized this for the sake of just systemizing it we've looked at these patterns these trends and what works well and what doesn't work well and yeah we we certainly recognize uh, subtypes if you like so, for example, let's say you're the classic Arnie. You, you've discovered and recognized this, usually the sport of triathlon, for example. Maybe you've come into uh, to triathlon with more of a, I don't know, like a rugby background or a football background or something that's, that, that requires a bit of strength, a bit of power, a bit of explosive speed, and you want to get into swimming. And chances are you probably pick up your biking and your running really quite well um because maybe because they're slightly less technical i guess than swimming but swimming can be really frustrating for the arnie and the arnie often picks up on this idea that they you know they need more efficiency they need to smooth it out and uh, unfortunately sometimes if they pick up on too much conventional wisdom this idea of okay to be more efficient you need to take fewer strokes per lap you've got to make your stroke feel effortless you've got to cut through the water and uh, and minimize stroke rate don't ever work too hard that sort of thing to the arnie who feels like they're battling that's a very um, exciting prospect um, and unfortunately many arnies become what we call the arnie overglider so they're, they're less technically minded let's say than your classic overglider um, they might they might not even have as extreme stro- slow stroke rates as the classic overglider but they've just got this sort of you can see it within their stroke in the sense that there's this there's this power and frustration that's still there and yet it's coupled with this stroke which looks really long and way too slow as well um on the flip side of that the bambino who i mentioned at the start is often quite nervous and quite anxious the big thing holding the bambino back is coordination and they'll, they'll often recognize in themselves not being super super coordinated in the pool it's specifically breathing will feel very much the challenge and what we tend to find is that Whereas the overglider might, um, the, the thing that differentiates their stroke is that they look like they're almost doing the catch-up drill. So the hand looks like they're actually catching up at the front of the stroke. The bambino looks like they're almost at the complete opposite end of the spectrum to that. So there is no catch-up at all. In fact, when they go to take a breath in, the lead arm will actually collapse. So this very narrow window of opportunity you have to be able to breathe in gets narrowed down even further when that lead arm collapses. So consequently, breathing feels even worse and even more challenging. If you couple that with going into the open water, 
you know that's 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 really that really sets uh, the bambine off into a bit of a bit of hysterics and can uh, really cause a, a, a bit of a panic attack. Now the the thing with that though is that left to their own devices, if this uh, timing issue at the front of the stroke is not corrected for the bambino, they'll often develop a stronger leg kick as they get fitter and more comfortable in the water. So that stronger leg kick will come in to actually create or make up for what's lacking at the front of the stroke so we'll often find many female bambinos specifically becoming a little bit kicktastic over time so yes they you know a lot of people the majority of people can be put into one of those six boxes and um, there are we do recognize those subtypes as well but the whole point of, of this is whether or not if you're listening to this and you're a coach or you're a swimmer whether or not you believe specifically that every that this is a black and white type of thing that you need to definitely fit in with one of those types or definitely not that's not really the point here the point is when we run these coach education courses and this is why we started with the very first course with this idea people want to know well i've got these faults wrong with me or this is what I've been told within my stroke, how do I go about correcting it? If I correct this, what will it do to that? And what will it do to this? And what will be that knock-on effect? So we wanted to be able to help coaches right around the world for our association with British Triathlon and now the International Triathlon Union uh, in 119 countries around the world now, Michael. We wanted to be able to help people understand, okay, well, I sort of recognize these traits and these patterns in how this particular swimmer is swimming uh, for me right now, here's an idea, here's a process that should work for that swimmer because of these traits and because they pattern up with that. And equally to then recognize that those same tools or those same drills won't work for this other swimmer who looks completely different to the way that the, the, the first one was swimming. So, you know, we wanted to put a bit of a system around this idea of individuality and, uh, and that's our way of, uh, that's our way of doing it. And it's a, it's a great system, um, as well to, to speak internally. Um, so I mentioned we've got 50 swim smooth coaches dotted around the world. We've had over 600 coaches now attend these three day, uh, swim smooth coach education courses. Being able to receive an email from one of my coaches in America, for example, and they say, I've got a classic overglider here. They don't need to say anything else, really. I've got a classic overglider. I know what they're going to list. I know what they, some of the issues they might be facing. And they might be coming to me saying, what would you do about this? What would you do about that? And because we have that language, that is, it allows us to understand the that interrelation between the on the coaching side of things, and we can quicker, more quickly help the swimmer, but also quick, more quickly help the other coach to um, you know to improve the way that they're coaching as well. So, yeah, <laughs> there we so, go. Something, <laughs> something that you showed in on the course was uh, this. Uh, uh, this uh, quote about models and uh, what the purpose of a model is and i'm not going to try to remember exactly what it is because i will butcher it but it's really good so can you if you remember it by heart what was uh, that quote yeah absolutely it, it is a fantastic quote and um, i'll actually just pick it up for you verbatim here um so i was um when we put this out it was a it was a daunting prospect putting something brand new out there to the swimming community. You know, on that particular first course in, in Birmingham, in the UK, we only had 12 coaches on that course. You had 20 with you in, uh, in Mallorca or 19 and yourself, of course. Um, putting it out to 12 brand new coaches was a bit of a daunting prospect because prior to us releasing swim types, the only system for swimming uh, technique improvement had always been to say, look, this is the model of perfection. 
this is what we all need to aim for. And if you think about it, it just doesn't make any sense because we're all built completely differently. Some of us are tall, some of us are short, some of us long arms, short arms, um, tall, fat, thin, whatever it might be, basically. But we all are bound to swim differently to each other but we can find these trends as well we can find this system and and this this idea of actually generating a model around this was a daunting thing to put out there for the first time and and still to this day it still causes uh, you know some angst and some people sort of say yeah oh, i don't not sure about this or what have you but anyway the the quote you're specifically referring to is this one here and it's um it was from uh, a, a, a S. Scott, I don't. I, I apologise here, Michael. I don't actually know the the first name, but S. Scott then is the, from the biomechanical model of the human f- facial system. So, uh, as in muscle muscle fascia. Um, so, the thing with this is that my, my wife had actually sent this across to me and said, "Look," at, and she knew how um, how I'd often get badgered with the system and people saying, you know, "I don't believe this is a load of rubbish" or what have you. And she said to me, "Here's something I found which was really quite interesting." And the quote is. The most important aspect of a formal scientific model is not that it is right or wrong. They are all wrong. Rather, a key value of a model or concept is its ability to generate ideas for experimentation. And that, if you think about it, Michael, is coaching in a nutshell, right? It's about this idea that, okay, here's a framework, here's a blueprint, use it but also be not afraid to actually step outside that box a little bit to think a little bit more laterally to use your uh, initiative to help people to the very best of your ability and we wanted a, a way to actually be able to sort of um if you like uh, narrow down or funnel this idea of individuality but then it, it allow coaches and swimmers to recognize where they might be starting from and at least give them a little bit of a, a help up the first steps or first few steps of the ladder as it were Exactly. It makes absolute sense. So let's dive into each model individually and, uh, and start to, uh, I guess, talk about what characterizes the, the different ty- swim types that we have. So uh, if you just list quite briefly uh, what are yep. the typical flaws in the stroke or point for improvement and things that might be yep. good uh, for, for each swim type starting, and then we can go into correcting their stroke so so if you start with the arnie what what are the characteristics of the arnie's stroke and uh, and in particular the flaws of that stroke sure so the arnie is the classic swimmer who fights the water they're often very frustrated by their swimming uh they're often typically quite inflexible and poor range of movement uh they need to learn better pace judgment often is the case as well so this is a sort of powerful athlete who can go off a bit too quickly and needs to tame that down in fact we actually call the process of working with the arnie taming the arnie um the physical characteristic is very easy to spe- see and spot. The legs tend to lie very, very low in the water, and this results in a lot of drag. They tend to be very highly competitive goal-setting personalities. They often are lean of build. So our caricature of the Arnie looks like, you might imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger to look like, and some people look at that instantly and think, well, I don't look like that. I'm not built, built by that. But the classic thing is this sort of muscular, whether it's a lean muscular or large muscular frame, um, at where, the, where the legs sit very, very low in the water. They're often very talented at land-based sports, but find swimming uh, surprisingly hard. And they have this good, as I mentioned before, this good natural sprinting ability. Um, From the Arnie, then, we have the the Bambino. Now, the Bambino, a completely different Before we go into the Bambino, can we talk about uh, the Arnie's stroke correction process while uh, people still remember the flaws? Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. No, not a problem at all. So when you recognize that somebody has very, very low sinking legs in the water, um, the way I sort of frame it for the Arnie is to sort of say, look, there's really only two things you need to consider when you're trying to improve your swimming. One is to reduce drag and the other is to increase effective propulsion. Now, the Arnie oftentimes look like they're actually putting in a lot of propulsion. It might not necessarily be directed in the right direction all the time, but this swimmer definitely doesn't look like they're lacking oomph or power or drive. It's the drag factor. So anything that you can do with the Arnie to correct low sinking legs and improve efficiency from that is really, really going to help. Um, so I'll often talk about this idea that if there is such a thing as conventional swim correction um, methodology, if you like, which is normally about reducing drag and getting someone swimming literally smoother through the water, then that typical conventional approach will often work quite well with the Arnie up until the point we don't want to overdo it and become the overglider. So the things that you'll often see them doing, the reason why the legs would be low in the water would be they'll be tending to hold onto their breath which lifts the legs, sorry, which lifts the chest too high and drops the legs down in the water. They'll tend to have crossovers with the lead arm crossing over in front of the head and the legs will then scissor kicking, which again creates drag. They'll tend to pull through with quite a straight arm pull through, believing that maybe they're using the shoulders to pull themselves through the water. But again, unfortunately, that lifts the chest up at the front and sinks the legs down at the back. Arnies often have very high head positions as well. So they'll often be looking forwards in the water um, as opposed to down towards the bottom. Um, and they'll often lift their head very, very high to take a breath in. Now, the head position, we'll come to that in the kicktastic in a moment because funny enough, that piece of advice about looking down to the bottom of the pool can be completely the wrong thing for the kicktastic. Um, but finally, they're also lacking that flexibility. So the Arnies often benefit from doing some land-based stretching, some mobility work, etc. But it's things like getting them to exhale better underneath the water, stopping their lead arm crossing over, especially when they're taking their breath in. And as you saw quite, uh, quite frequently on the course there, we did a, a drill which we call the javelin drill. And the javelin drill is a really, really good one where you you get the swimmer to kick on their side with a pair of fins on. They need to have a finis freestyler paddle. That's a pointy paddle that sits on just the lead arm, and it's actually attached just by the middle finger. And on the underside of this uh, little paddle is a keel. So unless the hand enters into the water and goes straight forwards in front of the same shoulder, the paddle will tend to fall off the hand if the swimmer is crossing over. And as we often talk about within our whole methodology, it's so easy to confuse swimmers with so many different things to actually think about. You know, you've got to think about your head position, your legs, your arms, and even me listing it out in that fashion, it can be like, oh, my God, well, where the heck do we start with all of this? When you start to recognize that a lot of these traits, there's like a cause and then there's an effect, the classic thing, as I just listed there, is this crossing over, which then leads to the leg scissor kicking apart. Usually the Arnie hasn't got a massive issue with their leg kick. It's just that their legs look like they're all over the place because of how the hands are going into the water. So once you start to recognize these traits and these patterns, then it becomes a much simpler process, not just for you, the coach, but also for the swimmer as well to understand, okay, well, I'll, I'll fix this and it'll have a positive knock-on effect for that. You just need to know where to start. So uh, like I say, the, the Arnie pro correction process, they often respond quite well to the sort of conventional uh, process of reducing drag. And, uh, you know, th there's a million and one different ways of doing that. Uh, I mentioned there, obviously, the acceleration, the crossing over, uh, even a little bit of work on the, on the flexibility there will help as well.
Yeah, and and head position you mentioned as well. In terms of the yeah. the breathing and holding on to their breath, uh, there was one drill that we did with the swimmers that uh, that I know that you you promote uh, quite a lot in in the Guru yeah. system that you have as well. Can you mention that? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So again, this is a lot of my a lot of my coaching is born out of as I mentioned before curiosity, and I've you know, I've been trained up by some brilliant coaches over the years myself. I've attended many different coaching courses and got certifications and all those sort of things, but it's always curiosity that's brought me around to this idea of okay, well, just because that's the status quo at the moment, that's how that's how it's been taught for everyone. Is that necessarily the way it should? taught for everyone and one of my i guess bugbears if you like is on the breathing side of things um you know a lot of people get taught that oh don't worry about your breathing that will come later on but if breathing is not fundamentally in place all this other stuff which i'm talking about does just just doesn't make any sense to start to work on until you're relaxed with the breathing now in many parts of the world people actually get told believe it or not to hold onto their breath underneath the water with the notion that if you hold onto your breath it improves your buoyancy well, you're absolutely right. It totally does. It does improve the buoyancy. But when you're trying to lay horizontally in the water and think about where your uh, where your lungs are situated relative to the center of mass, if obviously it's going to lift you up. If you're holding onto your breath, that's going to lift you up at the front and sink the legs down even further at the back. So the very last thing that the army wants to do is hold onto the breath. So the drill that you're referring to there is what we call the sink down drill and it literally involves a swimmer going down to the deep end of the pool and basically just trying to sink to the bottom of the pool now there's a couple of ways people can do this one is to focus on just exhaling in a nice smooth relaxed fashion feel like you're sighing out and that can be mouth or it can be even humming through the nose or the other way is just to blurt out the breath and what you want is the former not the latter the swimmer wants to be calm they want to be relaxed they want to sink down to the bottom of the pool and if you can do this a few times and get the swimmer feeling more relaxed with this and not holding on to any tension any anxiety and swimmers who can't sink will be the swimmers who are holding on to that anxiety who do naturally hold on to the breath so see as seemingly basic as this exercise seems for the army especially if you can help to reduce some of that tension reduce some of that buoyancy in the chest immediately they're going to start to swim a lot lot better and they're going to respond very very well to that particular exercise and you know for the coaches who out there might be listening we often talk about when you're working with a a type of athlete like the army who might be very type a very driven very sort of uh, i mentioned earlier on the yip ometer this wanting to get on with it you very much have to develop a lot of rapport with the athlete in the sense of they're going to want to trust what you're saying to them. So it's no good getting them to that point 45 minutes or 50 minutes into the session. If the army doesn't feel like your advice is working with them immediately, they're going to just tune out completely. Now, you might think that surely everybody does that, but you'll find that with the army especially, if you can get them to relax, if you can get the bum and legs just sitting up a couple of centimeters higher in the water for them to feel reduction in drag, they'll buy into what you're doing and they'll buy into the, the way you're actually helping them try to improve. And that's, that's a very, very important thing there, yeah. So let's move on to the Bambino and uh, the, the characteristics of their stroke and then how to correct it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the Bambino is um, it's quite interesting because if there were such thing as an adult onset swimmer, um, usually those adult onset swimmers would be Arnie's or Bambino. So let's think of them, Arnie's and Bambino's, as very new to swimming. And of course, the word Bambino means new or baby or, or what have you. And whilst that might sound quite uh, quite derogatory, um, it's not meant to be. It's The whole system itself is meant to have a little bit of uh, tongue-in-cheek about it, and it's meant to just have a little bit of fun about not the fun at people but uh, just to try to keep the whole system just that little bit light-hearted and the way we talk about the bambino is this idea that breathing is very very challenging now we talk about arnie's fighting and battling against the water the bambino almost looks complete opposite of this it's almost like the bambino is afraid to hurt the water the stroke looks like it's um, lacking um, a bit of oomph they have very poor feel for the water they may struggle to coordinate the freestyle stroke itself they find breathing very hard and they often need to stop at the end of every length to, to catch their breath low they've got very much a low power stroke without any uh, umph at all if you like and one of the things that we find in terms of actually connecting with the bambino relative to the arnie the bambino often responds very very well to just plenty of encouragement and and that's encouragement about them getting into their swimming now what i mean by this is Arnie's often try to or want to pitch themselves as a, a very competitive. They want to be better than where they're at at the moment. So if I'm using maybe an example to demonstrate what I've done with an Arnie to improve a, a, another Arnie, if you like, um, I'll often use examples of you know, high-class athletes who might themselves be Arnie's. Um, and they'll see that and they'll visualize it and think, yes, that's me. That's what I want to try to do with this. The Bambino, if you try to sort of compare too much with somebody who's overly um, above where they perceive themselves to be at this point in time, that'll be a big shutdown, a big turnoff. If I can relate to somebody and sort of say, okay, well, look, the timing of the stroke is something I saw with Jane last week. And Jane did this and we did that and we helped to promote it then the Bambino is going to really benefit a lot from that. And one of our most popular um, YouTube posts is with a lady called Mega Megan, or she's since become called Mega Megan. Her name is actually Megan. She's one of my swim, uh, swimmers in the squad. And Michael, you saw her video footage. This lady's gone from a CSS or threshold pace of 2 minutes 13 per 100 meters down to 1.32 per 100 meters. Now, the only thing that really looked like it was lacking within her stroke when she first started was it just looked like it lacked a little bit of um and over the years she's come out of a shell a bit developed a little bit more confidence developed a little bit more umph and she's actually getting in there now she looks you know she looks absolutely fantastic people all around the world talk about oh, i just want to be like mega megan i just want to do that I just want and she's come from you know no prior or no strong back, swimming background no prior big sporting background and she's just gone through the process and walked through it step by step and developing some of that umph so relating with the the bambino in that regard is very very important indeed especially just in terms of ensuring that you're not um, not making things a little bit too too daunting there. Um, the correction process is quite quite an interesting one, and it's where you need, as a coach or even as a swimmer yourself, need to be quite careful here. So, if we said that the the biggest um, symptom uh, that the Arnie's uh, sorry the, the Bambino's experience is this anxiety in the water, uh, this feeling of needing to climb out of the water to take a breath in, the usual cause of that is the lead arm actually collapsing whilst they're breathing. Now, coordinating the stroke is going to be uh, something that they really need to, to work on developing. We've got a, um, 
a drill which we call 6-1-6. And essentially, this has the swimmer kicking on the side for around about six leg kicks. They'll then take a stroke, swap over and breathe on the other side and then start the whole process again. So it's six kicks, one stroke, six kicks, one stroke. Now, most of our other swim types who've maybe got a little bit more experience with swimming, even the Arnies as well, can usually get the concept and pick that up very, very quickly. But somebody who's very, very new and feeling a little bit anxious in the water, they'll often find the coordination of doing that particular exercise quite challenging, quite alien even to them. So what we'll actually do is we'll actually implement a very, very basic tool in the lead arm and we'll actually get them to kick on the side but holding onto a little tube of Barocca like an empty vitamin bottle, if you like, or like a like a marker pen, something to give them a physical cue whereby, okay, this arm, this left arm, if I'm kicking on my side, needs to stay out in front of my head until the other one literally swaps it from one hand over onto the other. Now, you could say, well, that, isn't that adding in this dreaded catch-up that you're talking about within the overglider? And you'd be absolutely right in saying that. But the idea in the initial stages of working with the Bambino is to try to get some sensation of support with that lead arm. The pen or the Broca tube helps with that, helps that break down the timing so that once the swimmer feels a bit more confident, we can, can take the pen away. We've taught them the skill. Take the pen away. We do the same drill, but without quite so much of a catch-up at the front of the stroke. And the absolute best tool I've ever found for working with a Bambino is simply the Tempo Trainer. Again, it's made by a company called Finis from over in California. Um, it's really interesting, Michael, because when, when we first started talking about the benefits of stroke rate and these Tempo Trainers way back in 2004, um, again, we had few critics about it and people saying you should never use a tempo trainer with anybody less than a pro you know stroke rate is only for the pros forget about it with beginner swimmers but we've found the complete opposite of that to be true and the reason being is very fundamental if you look at a good swimmer whether they be a swinger or whether they be a smooth what characterizes their stroke is how much rhythm they have and when you look at somebody who's lacking confidence in the water and they and the stroke itself almost looks a little bit robotic, it looks forced, they really look like they're lacking rhythm. And the Bambino classifies that to a T. And what we see is that if you were to cap, tap out the beat of the Bambino swimming, it would sound a little bit like this. They'd, if Let's say the swimmer's breathing every three strokes. So they'd have stroke one, so it would go beep, beep, and then they take a breath and it would actually slip through. So it's almost like the stroke when they're breathing accelerates with the arm collapsing down in the water. So we'd have a stroke, stroke, slip, stroke, stroke, slip, stroke, stroke, slip. And the problem with that hand slipping is that at that exact point in time, that's when the swimmer needs to be feeling the support the most. Because if that lead arm's slipping, you're reducing the opportunity of the window to, to or the window of opportunity to be able to breathe in, and consequently the rhythm and everything just falls to pieces. So these tempo trainers are pretty cool because once you've told and shown somebody how to do the six one six drill and progress their stroke, and you might even get them to say to themselves, as opposed to one two slip, one two slip, or one two breathe. If you change the focus away from the breathing and get them to say one two stroke stretch one two stretch to that swimmer it'll feel like they're stretching and extending on that stroke but what in fact they'll be doing is just making their stroke really very very even and very very rhythmical and the great thing about these tempo trainers is they are not very intelligent if you dial in 60 strokes per minute the beeper will beep at you every single second it can't go second second 0.8 of a second 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 0.8 of a second which is what you might be doing when you're slipping your hand through the water so consequently 
for the Bambino especially, it just stops the overthinking process. All they have to do is just stay in time with the beep. Beep, 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 whether they're breathing or not. And consequently, they just end up uh, really developing that rhythm of the stroke. So I love working with Bambinos because the sense of achievement that you can help to help them achieve within their within their swimming um, just really helps to unlock a lot of it's even some some sort of confidence issues with uh, with swimming. And, you know, when you love swimming as much as I do, you know, you, there's nothing, absolutely nothing better than just sort of seeing somebody appreciate it and, and feeling like they can achieve and they there, can do There are it. a lot of great things there that we could unpack, but uh, just a few quick comments first. Uh, that uh, those posts and, and videos of Mega Megan, anybody who wants a little bit of inspiration and feel like they are in a bit of a swimming rut, go and go and watch them because that's uh, that's quite a transformation for sure, which is uh, very inspirational. And uh, then a few other things with the rhythm, for example, that's something that I actually learned from from one of your swims with coaches, uh, Julian, who I went to see for a video analysis in in London, Julian Nagy. Yeah, and, uh, and he he told me that he listens to swimming and that's something that i picked up from him that, that actually just closing your eyes and listening to the yeah. swimmer and the rhythm is uh, is a really great tool to uh to figure out uh, what uh what sort of rhythm they have and if, if there are any flaws there and and then the other thing there with with that slip when you're taking a breath you mentioned the 616 drill that's a great one because when when yeah. you are kicking on your side and then then just having that focus on that lead arm that's stretched out extended in front of you and making sure that you don't uh, that you don't let it slip un- until you are actually ready to to take that stroke so and there you obviously have fewer things to focus on than in normal swimming so that's a a great drill for for that bambino and and being able to focus on on not slipping through too early so let's move on to the kick testing and uh, that uh, swim type and stroke yes. correction process now it's interesting you mentioned Julian there for uh, for working on the the sound of the stroke because I definitely think that the Kicktastic has a very distinctive sound to their stroke. Uh, in fact, usually if you can, I often sort of um, suggest to people if I close my eyes, I can actually hear the Kicktastic coming before I can actually see them. If that makes sense, um, and what I mean by this is the Kicktastic has this very distinctive. <laughs> usually flipping along behind them. And usually what that is, is the, what characterizes the kicktastic stroke is they tend to sit very, very horizontally in the water. So the body position is not something holding them back. They generally speaking don't have huge amounts of drag. In some cases, especially some really good uh, female kicktastics, they'll sit so high that their feet will actually kick completely out of the water. Um, and that's usually what gives them this sort of duff, 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 sort of kicking rhythm, the thing that you can actually hear. And it's usually the foot coming too high and then creating a lot of splash and just driving down. Now, what a lot of people don't appreciate is that, yes, you want to have the body position horizontally in the water, and yes, you want the heels kissing the surface of the water, but if the whole foot is coming completely out, maybe because your legs just sit too high or maybe because you're bending too much from the knee, if you're creating that sound of sound at the back of the stroke, Generally speaking, you're creating too much drag and too much cavitation uh, with the bubbles behind you, actually creating more drag than you're actually providing yourself with propulsion. So some kicktastics often say to the, they'll actually be shocked when I say, oh, we think you're, a, I think you're one of these uh, kicktastic swim types here and this is why. They'll go, but I don't kick very hard. 
And I'll say, are you sure about that? Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. And I'll look down at my my clothes that I've been filming them in, and I'll be absolutely drenched because all this water's been splashing out of the <laughs> out of the side of the pool. So we'll we'll show the kicktastic their their kick, and they'll go, yeah, but that doesn't look like I'm kicking too much. And then you'll overlay somebody like Rebecca Adlington, double Olympic gold medalist and former world record holder in the 800 freestyle. And the video clip which we have of Rebecca, she's swimming at one minute twelve per hundred, and she's doing this with a perfectly horizontal body position but with hardly any kick so when you can overlay that for the kicktastic they can sort of see that okay well here's somebody swimming a lot faster than me and they're not achieving that because of how strongly they're kicking in fact they're achieving it despite how little kick they they seem to have there and studies have actually shown that uh, certainly for uh, for distances of 200 400 meters and above uh, most elite swimmers would only generate at best, around about 11 or 12% of their entire propulsion from the leg kick. So people who try to kick too hard, especially for distance events, can be wasting a lot of energy. Now, that's not to say you forget about the leg kick completely. You need to make sure you've got a smart leg kick. And for the kicktastic, in terms of actually correcting this thing, what we have to look at is not so much what's wrong with the legs, because usually the legs are actually okay. They're just kicking too high. What's usually wrong is a couple of things. Firstly, I mentioned there about the head position for the Arnie. The Arnies, I've worked with some tremendous Arnies over the years who've made huge improvements. One such guy who I showed you on the course, Michael, a guy called Charles, who flew over from South Africa for a training session with me, he knocked off nine minutes off his 1,500-meter freestyle. And when he came back and told me how he had done that, I said to him, well, what did we do during that first session that really struck a chord? And he said, oh, most of that session we spent talking about getting your eyes looking down to the bottom of the pool. And that was one of the ways, if you mentioned, if you remember me sort of saying, getting your eyes down for the Arnie will help to lift the bum and legs up higher at the back end of the stroke but for the kicktastic if they take on that same piece of advice it can be absolutely disastrous because if you think about it if you've already got good horizontal body position and even you're wearing a wetsuit or you're swimming in the sea where it's more buoyant if you look down too much and you've got a strong powerful leg kick and you sit really high chances are your feet are just going to be kicking complete thin air so you'll know yourself if you're a bit of a kicktastic if you're swimming slower with a pool boy or you feel like you go go from the back of your squad swimming lane um, whenever the coach says, right, pool boys in or pool boys and paddles on, you'll feel like you go backwards. And you might have assumed that that's because you're not as strong as the classic Arnie in front of you who puts the pool boy on and lifts the legs up. But really, it's not about strength at all. It's about how those tools, and they can be very telling of the tools that you use in a squad session, it's how those tools affect the stroke. So the pool boy, obviously, for the kicktastic, stops them kicking. And if that is their source of propulsion, usually it's highlighting an area of weakness within their stroke at the front. And I don't mean weakness in the sense of strength. I mean weakness in terms of how they're actually generating propulsion. So what you normally see with the pull-through of the kicktastic, they also tend to pull through with quite a straight arm pull-through, a little bit like the Arnie. It's a lot more of a push down and it's a lot less pressing water back towards the, the end of the pool that they've just left. So kicktastics find that quite frustrating and certainly swimming with a wetsuit can be frustrating because, you know, you can spend these days, you can spend eight, nine hundred thousand dollars on a wetsuit, maybe even more. And when you hear about John the Arnie or John, your mate, who you think is somebody with low sinking legs, um, who swims five minutes faster in his wetsuit over 1500. And there you are thinking, I don't swim any faster at all with my wetsuit on. 
you might be thinking, A, there's something wrong with your wetsuit, or B, worse, there's something wrong with you. And it's not really that. It's just a difference in buoyancy profile. So when we, um, back in 2011, um, Who Wetsuits, when they were just setting up, came to us and said, look, we want you to help, uh, help us build a range of wetsuits to help improve swimmers of all different swim types. We like your swim type system. We believe in it. We want you to help us build some wetsuits. And I said, well, one of the first things that I want to put out is I want to put out a wetsuit that's low buoyancy and actually helps the kicktastic. And everyone was like, what? Low buoyancy wetsuit? Everyone was racing to actually add more buoyancy to the wetsuit at this point in time, recognizing that some swimmers need a low... It doesn't make marketing the wetsuit easy. Uh, the poorest buoyancy wetsuit. It doesn't. It doesn't make marketing that wetsuit. No, easy it doesn't. You, no. All, all you have to do is, is say this is the lowest buoyancy wetsuit on the market. Exactly right. Or you can flip that around, which is what we did, and came up with something which I, I, I think is fairly clever. <laughs> um, is is this idea for of a wetsuit for people who don't like wetsuits? You know, as a marketing thing. I mean, that's hugely powerful because you might think, well, surely. Surely everybody loves a wetsuit, but there are a, a, a certain sector of the community who don't like wearing wetsuits. And if that's you and if you're listening to this podcast right now, nodding your head away there, chances are your body position is already very, very good. The last thing you want to do is make it too buoyant. So if you are a kicktastic, what can you do? Well, first and foremost, you need to, we often talk about this idea of the analogy of your your body almost being a little bit like a car. So a kicktastic is tends to be very sort of rear wheel driven. They're driving themselves from behind with their legs. They need to become a little bit more front wheel drive or front wheel focused, let's say. And that doesn't mean to say they kill the leg kick, but they need to develop a little bit more confidence in the way that they're actually developing the catch at the front. And the ultimate view for the kicktastic is to hopefully become a little bit more of an all-wheel drive machine. So where they've got this nice balance where the leg kick is assisting, not hindering, it's not overpowering and taking up too much energy, but they've got the confidence that they can pull through better. And one of the simplest ways to help most kicktastics that I see, in fact, I had one today, Michael, just down at the pool deck, a male kicktastic actually, one of the easiest ways to actually get them to improve is to actually do the opposite of what you do with the Arnie. Ask them to look a bit further forwards in the water um, and certainly with the wetsuit on, um, look even further forward still or even go to the extent of actually chopping off part of the lower limb of the uh, of the wetsuit itself just to reduce some buoyancy if you happen to be a kicktastic who's picked up an overly buoyant wetsuit. So before you go and splurge your cash on a new wetsuit, just think about how those things might be affecting your stroke before you think I'm rubbish and I'm not very good with the wetsuit full stop. It, it might be how that suit is affecting the way you swim. Yeah, and looking more forward in the water, especially during the training process, that could also help the kicktastic then uh, see what they're doing in the catch phase of the stroke and whether they are actually just pushing down or pulling through with the straight arm rather than trying to get their elbow up and, and getting getting that nice nice bend at the elbow. So it could be a, a double whammy there potentially. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a visual, like visual reference when you're talking about all this stuff. You, you might be listening into this podcast right now and thinking, yeah, some of these concepts, how do I, how do I actually visualize them? How do I actually action them when I'm in the water? And like you say, if your proprioceptive feedback and even your, 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 your peripheral vision extends forwards a little bit further so you can actually see what you're doing with your arm. So we might be doing something like the sculling drill and then a little bit of doggy paddle and then into your freestyle. If you can see your elbows bending, you can see yourself 
pressing water back behind you, then it's going to become a much easier way for you to actually uh, to to develop the stroke. And you know, we've got um, a really good um, athlete over here in Perth. She's won three Ironman titles around the world. Kate Bevilacqua, been coaching her um, since around about 2009, 2010, and. Kate went from swimming around about 63 minutes for an Ironman swim down to 49 minutes. And she would have been an absolute classic kicktastic when she first came. She said, I don't like my wetsuit. Um, I, you know, and she was, I looked at her stroke and she got her head buried down in the water. She's looking straight down at the bottom. I said, why are you doing that? She says, well, that's what I've been told to do. That's what other people have told me to do. So other people have been maybe in a squad scenario saying, okay, everyone get your head down to get your bum and legs up. But if you're already buoyant at the back, the last thing you want to be doing as a kicktastic is is looking down more so we developed um, Kate's uh, stroke to develop uh, into more of a swinger style and uh, she's fairly short she's got a really high turnover now really quick stroke rate and uh, and that's what we'd attribute to those uh, improvements in the in the Ironman times and she's certainly not afraid to train hard as well isn't Kate so it's been really interesting watching how how she's developed um, over the years for sure. Yeah that's a superb improvement uh, for nine minutes for an Ironman swim is it's, uh, rapid so let's move on to the overglider. Absolutely. So the overglider is my personal favorite. Um, we often, between myself and Adam, we often, um, you know, sort of say, okay, which swim type do you really like working with? And I think we both agree that working with the Arnie uh, can be a bit challenging because it can feel a bit, uh, you know, it, it feels like it's all on the line right from the get go, and you've got to, you've got to work really, really hard to make make that uh, relationship work and make the uh, correction process work well for you for the swimmer um but uh, my personal favorite i think is the overglider because i think you know i wouldn't be a coach if i wasn't curious myself and you know my background is sports and exercise science and i obviously your podcast and your, your website there scientific triathlon michael um you're a scientific sort of a guy as well so we're curious by nature we want to analyze things we want to look at the data but it's that very data which um we found has actually led people down a bit of a, a cul-de-sac with their improvement so we actually call the process of improving the overglider we call it curing the overglider because the world belief uh, prior to swim types has always been if you can make your stroke longer and take fewer strokes per lap you'll be more efficient so people went down this cul-de-sac of trying to take longer and longer strokes without recognizing that what they were hurting was the rhythm of the stroke this idea that the hands were actually almost doing this catch-up and people thought that's what i need to be doing i'll do this catch-up at the front of the stroke i'll take fewer strokes that's more efficient uh, but it's absolutely not <laughs> uh, full stop the um back in 1968 doc councilman put out a book on the art of science of swimming and um we talked about this idea of the difference between a catch-up style of stroke i.e what we call the overglider and more of a continuous freestyle stroke and that continuous freestyle stroke just generates more consistency in delivering you know force uh, to the to the water so that we don't have these big peaks and troughs that accelerate decelerate accelerate decelerate which is what the overglider tends to do and with water being 800 times more dense than air the absolute last thing you want to be doing when you're swimming is pausing and gliding I, I I really don't like the word glide. I think it's a bit of, we even refer to it as a bit of a dirty word here at Swim Smooth, just because in so many people, they, they have this idea that, okay, I've heard that I'm supposed to glide. I'll glide, I'll pause, I'll wait for the other arm to almost catch up. But in doing so, you're simply decelerating and losing all that momentum. Now, if you're in a swimming pool, it's not so much of a problem. And if you're six foot five, not so much a problem, especially if you co uh, couple it with a hugely strong, powerful six-beat leg kick. And a lot of people make the um, misunderstanding that somebody like Ian Thorpe 
was a overglider, but he absolutely was not. Ian Thorpe talks about this idea that when he does technique training sessions, he can swim down a 50-meter pool in around about 24 strokes. And he says that I can get it down as low as 20. And in his own words, he says, but the danger is if we go down to 20, then I'm simply gliding rather than swimming efficiently. And that's really interesting coming from somebody who looks very glidey. And what's more interesting is the fact that when he was racing, he wasn't taking anything like 20 strokes per 50 meters. It was more like 31 or 32. So what Ian Thorpe's recognizing there is this combination between the length of the stroke and the rate of the stroke. So what often surprises people is that when they've gone down this cul-de-sac and we see loads of people trying to go down the pool in less than 30, less than 35, less than 40 strokes, strokes but with stroke rates in the low 30s or 40 strokes per minute they're just they're going down this cul-de-sac they're not going to get any quicker if they just keep pursuing that and the interesting thing to show them is the fact that Ian Thorpe might have looked really long and really glidey and be taking only 31 or 32 strokes per lap but he was turning his arms over at 76 strokes per minute, which when we get people on the clinic um, on these coaches' courses, 76 strokes per minute, as you found yourself, I mean, your stroke rate is a smidgen quicker than that now, Michael, but yours was by far and away one of the quickest stroke rates out there. And yet you look at it and you look at Ian Thorpe's and it looks slow. And that's the, that's the um, misperception that people have is it looks slow because it's long, but people don't recognize that it's actually long and fast. And that's what makes, you know, obviously a very, very quick swimmer indeed, somebody like Ian Thorpe. So the overglider has gone down this cul-de-sac, unfortunately. They've tried to lengthen out too much. They've added in this pause and glide. They might even look like they're doing catch-up. And a really good view to view them from um, is a bird's eye view looking down. So when you're doing video analysis, you can actually see one arm literally about to catch up the other one in front of the head. So many people have heard about this uh, notion of front quadrant freestyle where one hand should wait out in front of the head until the other one passes in front of the head. But the overglider is taking this a little bit too literally and literally waits usually like they're doing a big catch up. So in many respects, the overglider from this perspective looks almost the complete opposite of the Bambino. The Bambino will slip their arm through the water and won't leave their arm out there long enough, whereas the overglider leaves it out there too long. And there's, there's often a bit of a mismatch. Again, overgliders typically very analytical, want to process the data, want to process the information, and might have learned that they need to swim with a two-beat leg kick rather than a uh, you know more of a like a standard sort of four or six-beat. And the notion being that if you swim with a two-beat leg kick, it's less energy sapping. It takes less energy, you'll be more efficient thereby. However, if you couple a really, really long stroke, let's say, um, let's say 32 strokes per lap, and let's say around about 40 strokes per minute, if you couple that with a two-beat leg kick and you've got this big pause and stall between strokes, what tends to happen with the two-beat cake is rather than it being like a, an addition to the stroke to balance out the stroke, it becomes what we call the overglider kick start, whereby the stroke comes to a complete stall at the front, and usually the swimmer, often without realizing it, will bend the knee and actually whip kick themselves at the, at the, from the back of the stroke. But in Fortunately, by bending the knee and whip kicking like that, the knee drops down below the level of the chest and the hips and creates more drag than it would have done had it just stayed out behind them. So 
if I often give this advice to overgliders that there's a couple of ways we can tune up your stroke. We can reduce the pause time out in front of the head. And initially, most overgliders don't like that because it seems contrary to what they've learned and what they've heard in the past and what they've held to be true. So the, the in, initial response is, well, doesn't that mean shortening up your stroke? I've heard that's a bad thing. So that's one aspect. We could, we could actually get them into their stroke a little bit quicker, raise the stroke rate up, and still couple that with a very effective two-beat kick, which is what the swinger swim type does. Or the overglider could maintain a longer, smoother stroke if they wanted to, but they absolutely must couple it up with more of a four-beat or a six-beat kick to provide continuous propulsion, pushing them from behind. And, you know, as you saw over the course of the uh, the three-day course there, Michael, my preference is, of course, probably a little bit of both, to be honest with you, but trying to make sure that they're not stalling quite so long at the front. And I've got a great little exercise that we do with some sculling, whereby we asked the, uh, asked the, all, all the swimmers to put a pull boy between the legs. They have their head up out of the water, so they're laying prone in the water, face down, and they've got their hands in front of the head, just gently sculling the hands in and out. And I often talk about it as this idea of like mixing hot and cold water together. But the critical key to success here is to ensure that your fingertips a bit deeper than the wrist, and the wrist is deeper than the elbow. Many, many people talk about this idea of a good catch looking like you're actually reaching over a barrel or tipping your fingertips over a Swiss ball, and this is exactly what we're trying to do. So fingertips are the deepest point. Now, the problem is as somebody glides their way down the pool, what they invariably do is they reach forwards and their fingertips reach up, and usually they present a stopping position where the palm of the hand actually blocks and pushes forwards, and unfortunately, that's actually creating a breaking effect. So the best way to show this to an overguider is to get them to do the sculling correctly get them feeling themselves moving down the pool and then get them to drop their elbows lift their fingertips up towards the surface as they've probably just seen themselves doing on the video analysis and they'll actually find that they'll go backwards rather than going forwards and they'll also feel like their legs start to drop as well from doing that so that's a really powerful drill is the um is the uh sculling drill to help with that and um i guess my last points on the overglider i'm sure you'll have a couple of questions but my last point on the overglider is there's a right way and a wrong way to fix the overgliding stroke the wrong way to fix the overgliding stroke is just to say to somebody hey your stroke rate is 35 strokes per minute it should be at your swimming speed let's let's take an example it should be somewhere between 58 and 64 strokes per minute and we can show that on a little chart that we've got. You, I might be able to give you the uh, the link, Michael, for the for the podcast. Um, so you can actually determine at your given swimming speed what that range should be. But let's say the swimmer is swimming at around about thirty five strokes per minute. The wrong thing for you to do as a coach or even as a swimmer to improve it is to think, okay, I've got this great tool here. I've got this Finney's Tempo Trainer. I should be at 58. I'm already, I'm at 35 at the moment. I'll just try and turn the Tempo Trainer on, put it at 58, and I'll try to stay with the with the beeper, with the pacer there. But that'll be an absolute disaster because it'll be a little bit like driving, driving down the freeway with your handbrake still on. What we've got to learn how to do for the overglider is where within the stroke that handbrake occurs – fix that aspect of the stroke. And I'm just giving one example doing the sculling drill. If you can remove the handbrake, you improve the rhythm. If you improve the rhythm, the tempo goes up. If the tempo goes up, you can give them a tempo trainer at, say, 58 strokes per minute. The swimmer can swim there. They can feel it. They can feel like they're moving quicker. But most importantly, you can then dial it back down to 35 strokes per minute and let them feel what it feels like to be literally 
overgliding and swimming too slow at the front of the stroke there. Yeah, that, that's something that you did quite a lot in in many other contexts as well with the contrast drills where you went back to the original uh, stroke that the swimmer had and, and showed them the contrast between what the new improved stroke was and, and the old one in, in various different different ways to, to make the swimmer feel the difference between between the the old way and the new way and and sort of ingrain that that new habit that uh, and that was a really powerful way not just for the overglider but for for many other swim types with with different drills i think to uh, to really uh, reinforce those new new habits so so i really like that and and then the other thing yeah it's, it's one of those things which over the years has caused a bit of consternation with certain coaches and stuff why why would you ever get someone to go back to doing the old thing you know you want to keep them moving forwards but that contrasting uh methodology if you like is super super powerful and we've been able to do more and more of it over the years as we've started to you know as technology has improved one of the things that we use on a regular basis again made by finis is this coach communicator which allows me to actually talk to the swimmer whilst they're swimming so there's nothing more powerful than saying to somebody you're doing it right feel it feel what it feels like to be doing that right tune into the muscle memory of that and now let's do it wrong and when you get them to go back to doing it wrong, in an instant, they can feel exactly why they've come to you in the first place to help them improve their stroke. They can feel it straight away. Whereas in the past, you know, you might get someone to do a lap, uh, get to the end of the pool and then turn around and then come back and you might get them to try to go back to the old stroke. But even that turnaround and stop at the end of the pool is not enough of a smooth transition for them to really feel what it is that you're working for and also the benefit of, uh, of those improvements that you're trying to make with them. Yeah, uh, two or at most three sentences. What do you think about Swolf? <laughs> We're going to produce a T-shirt. We've just been laughing about this, uh, the fight against Swolf. Uh, stand and join us in the fight against Swolf. And the reason I'm so strong in, in this uh, opinion on this is that Swolf basically is um, it's an acronym or I, I might have even got my terms mixed up there for acronym, but it's an abbreviation of the two terms, swimming and golf, put together Swolf. Now, I'm sure almost Every single one of your listeners is using a Garmin watch or some other wearable to track their um, their swimming, their biking, their running. And one of the metrics which all of these watches tend to use is this Swolf metric. And I absolutely hate it. And the reason I absolutely hate it <laughs> is, and that sounds like a strong word, um, but the reason I don't like it so much <laughs> is simply the idea that if you take fewer strokes to complete each lap and you do it quicker, supposedly you're swimming more efficiently. So let's let's just sort of break that down. If you're in a 50-meter swimming pool and you take 50 strokes to complete the lap in 50 seconds, your swall score is 100. So it's 50 seconds plus 50 strokes, that's 100. Now, you can either improve your efficiency by taking fewer strokes. So let's get say you go down the, the pool in 48 strokes now and still at 50 seconds, your score now added together is 98. So that would be deemed to be an improvement. Equally, you could go down the pool in 48 seconds, um, or I think I said it the other way around, but anyway, the, the vice versa of that, you could either do it slightly quicker and stay the same number of strokes or do it in fewer strokes and keep the same amount of time. Either of those two factors would actually result in a uh, in a lower score, which would be seen to be more efficient. Now, the absolute crazy thing about this is that people just take that for granted and they think, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I'll go with that. And, it's, and it is a simple metric to work on. It looks at nothing to do with the heart rate response of that or your physiological response of actually doing that. So we see so many times people doing these stroke correction sessions 
and uh, and um and maybe a squad session where the coach says right everybody we're going to go down the pool now and we're going to try and reduce how many strokes we take and the winner is going to be the person who can go down the 50 meter pool in less than 40 strokes and you see some guys who rock up and they're six foot two and they go down in 34 and they're like yeah thank you very much i can do that no problem and you have uh, a smaller female swimmer for example she might be five foot one she might be faster than the six foot two guy but she goes down the pool in 60 strokes and she ends up with a score higher than this swimmer with the with the long stroke um, and it seems to be less efficient and the coach says oh that's great you know so and so went down in 34 you've gone down in 60 you need to work on your efficiency but there's a biological and like a a, a a limit if you like to how few strokes people some people can take given their height and their build and when you look at it on the world scale Interesting enough, the three best swimmers on the planet at this point in time, and I'm talking about Katie Ledecky, Gregario Paltrinieri. So Katie Ledecky needs no introduction, really. You know, she's world record holder in everything from 200 meters, 200, 400, 800, 1500 freestyle. She's absolutely unbelievably good. If you look at Katie Ledecky, look at Gregario Paltrinieri. So he's the current uh, Olympic and world champion over 1500 freestyle in the pool. He was taking around about 13 strokes more per lap than some of the other swimmers who finished behind him in Rio. If you take him and you take the world's best breaststroker of all time, Adam Peaty, by that metric alone, those swimmers are the least efficient within the Olympic Games finals by the Swolf method alone, by looking at that metric. So what it's not looking at is it's not really looking at, well, okay, how does this affect the swimmer's response? Now, if you could couple Swolf with something like regular and reliable heart rate data, then we might be talking about something which could be a little bit more effective for the swimmer to, to monitor. The danger is, and as you saw on the course, we ran a stroke rate ramp test, which is essentially eight times 50 meters where you, reckon, you recognize where the swimmer's natural stroke rate is. So let's just take a simple number. Let's say 60 strokes per minute. You start them off at around about six to eight strokes per minute slower than that. So let's say 52. You get them to swim 50 meters at 52 strokes per minute. And as the coach on the side, you might be counting how many strokes it takes the swimmer to swim that lap. You're looking at how that relates to their um, swimming speed. Uh, what time do they do for that 50 meters? You're asking the swimmer for what that felt like on a scale of one to 10 and any specific comments about what that stroke felt like. And the whole idea with this ramp test is you ramp it up by about three strokes per minute on each 50. So you do a 50 at 52, a 50 at 55, 50 at 58, 50 at 61. And you control this using the tempo trainer and you just look at the results and what you'll find is for most people it'll actually end up creating like a bit of a bell curve in the sense that as the stroke rate increases speed will also start to pick up up until a point where the swimmer truly gets to a point where they're starting to fight the water now one of the drawbacks about doing that exercise is if you do it over any distance longer than 50 meters ultimately fatigue starts to play an effect on the later stages within that but from a heart rate perspective, if we're looking at heart rate as a, as a response to the workload that you're actually putting in, heart rate is so slow to respond over 50 meters that you can't get a true meaning, a meaningful um, you know, um, data from that to sort of say, this is definitely better than that one, this is definitely better than that. But you know, a lot of, the, a lot of these wearables these days, especially the Apple Watch, has got that continuous uh, heart rate measurement. Uh, and it's getting, you know, we're doing a lot of testing with these at the moment. And, and it's just that data is getting better and better and better so it's only a matter of time before uh, before somebody comes up with something a little bit better yeah and b before leaving this overglider i just want to address i guess the the misnomer that uh, we want to 
to, I guess, uh, produce less energy when we're swimming. It's like saying that you want to go from, from 270 watts for your half Ironman bike, uh, bike power to 250 watts. Then you are producing less energy, but it won't get you faster to the finish line. We want to get faster to the finish line, and then we need to produce more energy. And uh, the person that produces the most energy in a productive manner, which is, of course, a bit more difficult in swimming because economy is uh, more variable compared to cycling, uh, or a lot more variable. But as long as we can keep that same sort of economy or efficiency for ourselves, then the more energy that we can produce, the faster stroke rate without losing the efficiency of the stroke, uh, then uh, that's always going to be better and make us better swimmers. So I think that uh, looking at these different proxies, especially for efficiency, is uh, putting the, the cart before the horse a little bit when really it's as simple as looking at speed how how can you get how can you get faster and and still be able to maintain that speed of course for your for your race distance rather than complicating things uh, things too much with trying to yeah. think about uh, extending your strokes so that you're wasting the least amount of of energy do you know what? Well, that's a that's a really really interesting uh, observation there, Michael. Because the um, when you consider energy production and and how that affects uh, not just the the stroke mechanics, if you like, but also what you're actually producing within your body. In 2013, I was lucky enough to. Um, Firstly, enough, lucky enough to compete in the world's longest and most prestigious marathon um, swimming marathon swimming event, the uh, Manhattan Island Marathon Swim. Um, that was the first lucky thing. The second lucky thing was that I actually ended up winning that event. So it's a forty-eight kilometer swim around New York City, and um, it's you know there's some very very famous people over the years have actually won that particular event, and uh, and I was lucky enough to win it. And I say lucky enough. There's obviously a lot of hard work that went into it, and. When we were doing the training for that, we looked at energy production and knowing the conditions, that swim normally has water temperatures of around about 21 to 22 degrees Celsius. Now, prior to the, um, as we, this was June of 2013, I think it was in December. Uh, somebody might tell me it was October or November, but anyway, about five or six, seven months prior to the swim, massive hurricane went through New York City and it just really disturbed the weather pattern so much so that when we swam that event, it was 14 degrees Celsius in the water. Now that's really cold. That's colder than the English Channel and you have to do this swim in your, in your standard bathers. So your standard sort of swimming uh, costume, no wetsuit, no thermal properties that you're allowed to actually wear to keep you warm. You have to adapt to that. And as part of my preparation for that event, yes, there was lots of kilometers done, around about 35,000, 40,000 uh, meters of swimming every week for, you know, for the le year leading up to that. But one of the considerations we had as well was how do we generate and sustain heat during that particular swim how do i keep myself warm how do i prevent myself becoming hypothermic because it's a huge risk i mean i i'm not a i'm, I'm bigger than yourself obviously michael both in terms of uh height and uh, and weight i think certainly in terms of weight now these days but um, i'm not a massive guy and there were guys in this event who you know 100 kilos and i would have been i guess i would have been around about 75 80 kilos when i when i raced that particular event there's big units that carry a lot of weight they they've just got a lot better insulation 
population. But what I had at my sleeve was this fact that I knew what stroke rate I could sustain. And because I tend to be more of the swinger swim type, which is what we'll get onto, the swinger swim type tends to have a slightly shorter stroke and a higher stroke rate. So just generating this higher tempo allowed me to actually generate a little bit more heat and keep myself moving. I had to be very careful in the rest periods not to stop for too long and to cool down. But it definitely gave me that rhythm. It gave me momentum, generating that energy, and it was helping me to literally fuel my swim in terms of the the heat production from that. And uh, you know, as as we as I just mentioned there, I ended up winning the uh, winning the event from a an eighteen year old guy from from another Australian from over here. Um, he was he'd been training one hundred and twenty kilometers a week for this uh, event. So, uh, and he was a very very good accomplished international swimmer. There's nothing better than I've got to say nothing better than uh, than getting around and beating him on a third of the volume of training but from i just believe that what we did for the preparation of that was it was a very smart look at how to uh cope with the conditions the cold and look at how the stroke mechanics actually can help you with that yeah absolutely great great example uh, let's move on to the the smooth and the swinger perhaps we can take these in in parallel and go through them yeah. uh, slightly uh, abbreviated or not abbreviated but uh, but effectively yeah. because i have another interview coming up which uh, i actually just uh, sent a message that i'll be a bit late so it's okay but but we'll yeah. try to cover i have covered them off here talk, I, <laughs> I have a tendency to over talk i do apologize but i hope uh, your listeners are, are enjoying anyway the um the swing and the smooth yes we can certainly do those in parallel because really um as a kid i remember I just mentioned there that I'm not particularly tall. Uh, my my height is five foot ten, one seventy five centimeters. I'm certainly not your archetypical um, swimmer's build. I have tiny little hands, size seven feet or forty one in euro size. There, I don't look like your your classic swimmer. Um, ironically enough, when I was a kid growing up, I just wasn't very good at sprinting. Uh, I haven't got the ability to generate a lot of high power and uh, explosive propulsion there. But I always seem to gravitate towards the longer distance events and uh, and could like just work very very hard in training sessions now that was never actually actualized or realized when i was actually uh, racing as a kid because usually the only races you can do as a kid are 50 meters or 100 meters it wasn't until i got into triathlon in 1994 that suddenly this sort of stroke which i'd been developing and it seemed to sort of work quite well for me had um it w- was just sort of ideally suited to the open water and it's the same style of stroke i wouldn't put my same myself in the same sort of athletic achievement at, um, rankings as alistair and jonathan brownlee but it is the same sort of stroke that you see these guys swimming with it's not a stroke that looks particularly pretty in the pool but it is effective especially in the open water the problem is that most coaches certainly most coaches who i came across in my earlier uh, childhood would sort of be saying hey you know you don't want to be swimming like that you don't want to be steamboat boat willy you want to try and get your elbow really high you want to make your stroke longer you want to kick harder and to this day it never happened but one of my very first swimming coaches said to me look we're going to get you on video and this is when people were carrying videos around on their shoulders, these massive video cameras. And he says, we're going to get you on video because we're going to do this thing. We're going to analyze your stroke and we're going to show you what you're doing wrong. And he never actually did that. The coach never did that. But it was, the, I guess it was the first seed in my head thinking, oh, video analysis could be interesting. And you know, to this day, 21 years uh, into my coaching career, if you like, that's uh, you know, it's still the thing that gives me the most passion. So um, smooths are very easy to spot in the pool. They're somebody who looked just very, very smooth and very very graceful and there's nothing obviously there's nothing wrong with their stroke we wouldn't be called we wouldn't still be called swim smooth 
Some people have said to us, yeah, how do you come, how come if you, you're banging the drum for the swinger, why do you still call yourself swim smooth? We can all appreciate those smooth, graceful strokes of people like Ian Thorpe, Grant Hackett, Rebecca Adlington, one of my favorite swimmers of all time. Even Ferry Vertman, who won the uh, Rio Olympics uh, 10K uh, marathon swim there, he's definitely more of a smooth than he is a swinger. What really good smooths do well, especially when they're transitioning into the open water, is they know how to adapt their stroke. They know how to maybe forego some of that classic high elbow. They know how to shorten up the stroke a little bit and lift the tempo. They're not afraid to draft and sit in a pack and benefit from this, the energy-saving perspective that that would give them, and uh, and they and they work from that. So in terms of what those two swimmers, those two swim types, the swing and the smooth, might need to do to correct their stroke, well, you can probably imagine that the smooth process is just a little bit of general tidying up here and there. We sometimes see these swimmers being a little bit too greedy with their stretch forwards in the fact that they'll reach forward and their hand will actually turn out slightly to get a couple of extra centimeters within their stroke, usually thereby dropping their elbow a little bit on the catch and pull through. But generally speaking, their stroke looks really good and just needs a bit of tuning up and then a little bit of adaptation to the open water. Some swingers, and I put myself in this bracket as well, can be a bit overzealous on the stroke rate. So when I started that particular event I just mentioned, the Manhattan Island Marathon Swim 2013, what Adam uh, was doing on the boat was actually recognizing and recording my stroke rate. And we knew that my ideal and optimal stroke rate to swim for 48 kilometers was 81 strokes per minute. We'd done the testing, we'd done, we tested it to the nth degree, 81 was the number that I was going for. Now, when you're in the open water, you've got no recollection about how long the stroke is or even how fast you're moving. I actually averaged 58 seconds per 100 meters as I swam 48 kilometers around the around the island. Now, you're probably listening to that and you're thinking, hang on, what's he just said? He's got, he's got maths are wrong there. Surely he can't swim 58 seconds per 100 for 48 kilometers. And you'd be absolutely right because that's the world record pace for 1500. But the thing about swimming around Manhattan is you have all these currents and rivers and they're generally the net result of those currents and the, the, uh, the currents are pushing you are in your favor. So consequently, I was swimming at maybe, let's say, 110 per 100 meters, but I was actually moving at 55, 58 seconds because of those currents. So in the absence of knowing exactly how fast you're moving for pacing, in the absence of knowing exactly how long your stroke is, the only other metric that you can measure is stroke rate. So I set off on this particular event. I'm over-revving. I'm at about 90 strokes per minute. And Adam just shouts it to me from the boat, you're at 90 strokes per minute. Now, I didn't have a tempo trainer on. You weren't allowed to use those in the event. All I simply did was I knew what it would feel like to back it back off to 81, and it was enough of a reference for me to then pace it out correctly and then ultimately go on and win that particular event. So uh, most swingers need to be just a little bit careful about being a bit overzealous with with their stroke rate, and um, the, the mere nature of swinging their arm more over the top of the water if it's not controlled as that hand goes in, sometimes they can develop a bit of a crossover in front of the in front of the head there as well. But uh, yeah, that's the, uh, the the take home points there on the swinger and the smooth. And you know, just as a, a round out, if you don't mind, uh, Michael, the um, we when we're talking about the process of working with each of the swim types, we call uh, the Arnie, as I mentioned, taming the Arnie. We call the process of working with the Bambino boosting the bambino that's boosting the confidence of the bambino for working with the kicktastic we talk we call it inspiring the kicktastic kicktastics often respond a lot to varied stimuli when they're actually uh, training and improving and that can be fins pull boy paddles lots of different bits and pieces we call it curing the overglider 
We call it motivating the smooth because if you can motivate a smooth, there's absolutely, you know, the world is your oyster, basically. And then finally, for the swinger, we call it supporting the swinger. And the number of swingers I've talked to over the years um, who've just sort of said, you know, everyone's told me that I'm achieving despite my stroke. We'd actually argue the complete opposite of that. We believe that many swingers are achieving and, uh, and being successful because of how their stroke suits their body type and build in the environment in which they're trying to swim. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you said, for open water swimming and, uh, and triathlon swimming, longer distance swimming, it is, I mean, for people that are natural smooths, I, I think that you would say that they should not try to change that. But if a person gravitates more toward just the swinger swim type, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. On the on the contrary, it might even be more beneficial than than being the natural smooth when it comes to that open water swimming. Although both swim types can can be very very successful in in that environment yeah, and right. in long distance swimming. Yeah, totally. That's exactly right. Yeah. So just quickly, how can athletes self-diagnose which swim type they are? And feel free to also talk about the the guru and the the things that you have there that helps athletes. Uh, at least do this identification process sure well i think first and foremost i'd hope that had you listened into this uh, to this podcast you might even have already started to think okay well maybe an arnie or maybe i've gone down that pathway of becoming an arnie overglider you might even recognize that in that discussion but uh, failing that go to swimtypes.com and we've got uh, three ways you can do it you can look at some of the videos you can look at some of the profiles you may have got some video of your stroke you might even be able to cross-reference and see the similarities we've even got a questionnaire on there which allows you to uh, fill in a couple of questions related to things like speed um swimming experience, background, uh, what you feel is holding you back, are you faster with a pool boy or without, and the clever algorithm that sits in the background can give you a reasonably strong certainty of which of those swim types you might be. Um, but then the, the, the very best way, of course, is to see uh, see a coach, specifically one of our swim smooth coaches, who can look at uh, look at you and give you that diagnosis and so say, okay, look, these are the things holding you back. This is what you need to do moving forward. Now, if you tap onto swimsmooth.guru, you can also go onto there, go through that same process. And the benefit there of actually going through the guru is that's our online coaching platform to then give you the step-by-step process to correcting those issues that you have within the stroke uh, in a structured, systemized format. And I think probably quite a nice sort of summary of swim types itself is this idea that Every swimmer um, or every swim type is almost like a collection of a specific set of faults. So even if you're looking through this and you think, I can't recognize myself, or you look on the website and think, I'm not quite so sure, what you would be able to do within the guru is go into our fault correction section, so fault ID or identifying those faults, and actually go through and think, okay, I've got low sinking legs. This is the process I'm going to follow, and we'll give you a session for that, or I'm crossing over in front of the head. Here's a session to actually correct that. So there's a couple of different ways we go about it. Of course, for our main methodology, we utilize the swim uh, swim type system, and that's very much underpinning everything that we do there. Yeah, I, I used uh, the Guru in the early part of the year, followed one of those uh, fault fixers or or correction processes. Uh, what I did specifically was I wanted to do it to tidy up my, my leg kick a bit and, and develop a better uh, two-beat leg kick because what I had – I'm mm-hmm. Usually I'm a classic swinger, swinger, I guess that you would agree, but, but my leg kick was really nothing. It wasn't a six beat, a good six beat kick and it wasn't a two beat kick either. It was just there and, and nothing 
in particular was going on about it there was no good rhythm no propulsion either so so i went through the the, the entire process there that you have on, on the guru for uh, for developing a two-beat leg kick and, and now i think that it's uh, it's pretty well ingrained in my stroke so yeah, you're doing, it was looking very good. I was very impressed, actually, yeah, how well you'd done that. And, you know, it's very much about just sort of formalizing that leg kick, like you say, activating it a bit. That doesn't mean to say you're kicking harder, but just making sure it's part of the actual process, the part of the, the movement of the whole body, if you like, for sure. Yeah, and, and for any fault there that you have uh, the great sections, great information, the drills to go through, but also entire sessions that, that swimmers can just pick and put into their the training program if if you know that you want to correct your sinking legs there are there are sessions there for for doing that so so it's a really a great part of the guru and that's just uh, just part of the things that you that you have there so so it's a great great tool for this uh i'll ask one more question about the guru but first one final about the swim types and that is how common are these different swim types in terms of uh, frequency like the percentage of swimmers that you work with how many are arnies bambinos etc roughly it's a brilliant question. And uh, you may recall the pie chart that we had up um, in the classroom there on the three-day course. Um, if you think about it a little bit like this, so the Arnies and the Bambinos, we've already mentioned that these are often adult-onset swimmers. So these swimmers are often going to be looking for information on how to swim and how to improve. The Overglider themselves is also an adult-onset swimmer, albeit they might have been swimming longer than the Arnie and the Bambino. So in terms of how that actually breaks down, of all the swimmers that we see, it tends to be around about 40% overglider. We tend to see around about 20, 25% of each of the Arnie and the Bambino. And then the remaining three swim types, the Kicktastic, the Smooth, and the Swinger, are much smaller in proportion. And the reason we sort of explain that is that Kicktastic, Swingers, and Smooths have often had a swimming background. So chances are they're less likely to be looking for this information. Now, those stats are based on number of downloads of people actually signing up for the Guru or utilizing our swim types website and going through it. So that's a, a very good um, recollection of what the what the internet community looks like and potentially people listening to this podcast as well but on a day-to-day basis over here in Perth my squad over here in Perth you can imagine Western Australia right out here on the ocean swimming is a big part of our culture over here um, swimmers from you know from day dot have been in the ocean swimming with surf lifesaving we do have a very very high percentage of swingers over here which is probably one of the reasons why over the years I've been able to recognize not only this type within myself but within some of the you know the fastest swimmers within the squad so in if you came if anybody ever came over to my squad over here in Perth of the 450 people we have regularly swimming within the squad I would say I'd actually probably put um, a good 20 25 percent of the swimmers in the squad would be in that swinger bracket we'd probably have as much as 10 to 15 percent in the smooth bracket and obviously the other four types the Arnies the Bambinos the Kicktastics and the Overgliders if I'm doing my job correctly as a coach then you should see far fewer of those uh, really jaggedy edges let's call it so the whole process with swim types is try to recognize where somebody's starting from and then giving them a process of how to improve so given the fact that you know the the life and soul of swim types um, and swim smooth itself is based here in perth then if i'm doing my job correctly if you came over here you wouldn't see any outstanding arnies or any outstanding bambinos outstanding kitassi outstanding overgliders because we'd have hopefully already smoothed the edges to some to some extent Mm, yeah yeah that makes perfect sense uh, so finally, uh, with uh, everything that you are doing with uh, Swim Smooth and uh, both Ordering Perf and the Guru, anything that you want to share, any updates that are coming out, uh, this is your moment to to talk about that. 
Yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, yeah, the Swim Smooth Guru is something which we've been working on for about five, six years now, and it's always a, um, a constant um, you know, labor of love to, uh, to try to make it as good as we want it to be. You know, myself and Adam, we're both very ambitious with where we think we can go with, uh, with what we're trying to, trying to do with the, with the guru. Um, but obviously the development of this takes time. It takes money. And we're super, super grateful for people who are utilizing the guru, who send us through information and feedback saying, I like this, but that could be better. I like this, but hey, can you improve this and do that? And some of the key areas that we've been uh, listening into and that what people want is simple things like better calendarization um, and better programming of sessions. But what most people want more than anything else is this ability to integrate their wearables. So whether it be a Garmin, whether it be an Apple Watch or what have you, and actually sort of seal and uh, join up that feedback loop. So for example, somebody would take a, uh, a session from the guru, they might print it out, take it down to the pool deck, or they might even be able to see that session on their wearable. They'll do the particular session. The session will actually be recorded on the wearable. It'll then go back up into the guru. It'll process that information and be intelligent enough to then give you a suggestion on what you need to do going forward from there. Now, these wearables are forever improving and what they can detect within somebody's stroke might even help us down the line to ID your stroke faults and then and feed that information back into the guru to provide you with an even better uh, process. Now, nothing is ever, ever going to replace um, good coaching. And one of the reasons we're developing our Swim Smooth uh, Coaches Network, our certified coaches around the world, is that we believe and we see on a day-to-day basis, in fact, the number one people, number one reason why people would actually unsubscribe from the guru is they tell us that they've actually found their local Swim Smooth coach and they're actually going to then train with that Swim Smooth coach. And for us, that's perfect, really, because the guru is that sort of, you know, the, the getting you off the starting ranks. It's getting you going. It's introducing you to these ideas, these concepts, and you'll take it so far. But then what we can't recreate, unfortunately, within the guru is that feeling of community, that feeling of belonging and swimming within the squad. And that's highly, highly motivating. But on that train of thought, one of the other bits of feedback is how can we actually sort of gamify and make a little bit more of a community about what we're doing. We've got literally, we've got 50 coaches around the world. Each of those coaches has uh, at least 100 swimmers in their squad. That's 5,000 plus swim smooth swimmers right around the world who all want to share their data and share their experiences of, of swimming better. So we're working very, very hard uh, behind the scenes. A lot of people think, you know, oh God, you know, when is this ever going to come out? When's it going? I feel like that, trust me, more than anybody else, Michael. Um, but uh, trust me, we are working hard at the scenes 24-7. We've got a brilliant IT team working on this now, a dedicated uh, IT team of specialists um, who are on board and uh, employed by us to, to work full-time on this. And uh, the stuff that they're doing behind the scenes, which I can't share any mu- much more of it until it's out, of course, um, is, is super exciting and, and should hopefully really blow people's socks off as it, as it is doing mine and Adam's at the moment. I, mean, I think the current version is already doing that. To be honest, the the amount of information and uh, and stuff that you get there is amazing. The quality of the drill, te- the drill technique videos, for example, is something that you just uh, believe me. I try to find free videos on YouTube uh, of all the different drills, but there's nothing that comes close to the the video quality and and how you explain the videos that of of the different drills and and technical aspects of swimming that that you have there. Plus for a lot of people that are not familiar with things like using the tempo trainer uh, to stay with the beep or doing the red mist cycles, the, uh, the beat the beeper type of, of, red, of tempo trainer workouts, those sorts of things. 
can be calculated automatically based on your CSS pace. And there's just a lot of really great things already in the current version. So uh, yeah, I can only imagine that that the, once you get the new version done, it will really blow the socks off people, as you say. Yeah, we, I mean, obviously one of the key things is to make the you know the speed of the of version two at the moment is something which is frustrating us as much as uh, some of the users, and we're yeah you know, we're working harder to try to improve that and make the app work a little bit more natively as opposed to just being this uh, being this web app at the moment, but. I think fundamentally, you know, there's nothing wrong with people. Um, so, you know, I mentioned at the start, I'm a very curious person myself. I want to do my research. There's nothing wrong with people jumping around and looking at different YouTube clips here, there, and everywhere sort of thing. But the danger is if you draw too much from too many varied sources is that you ultimately end up confusing yourself. Um, I had one of, uh, even just one of my swimmers in the squad just the other day, she said, hey, I heard you on such and such a podcast. And I was like, uh I, I heard you mention on such and such a podcast. I said, "Oh yeah." Well, I said I was on. I was on that particular podcast um, as well in five shows' time. She's, yeah, but they seem to be saying something completely different to what you're saying. And I said, "Yeah," and she says, "I like to listen to lots of different things from all over the place." But I said, and "I said, are you confused?" And she says, "Oh, absolutely." And I said, "Well, what we've tried to build within the Guru is very much a, a system behind what we're putting out there. So it's not just a collection of videos left, right, and center sort of thing. It's, a, it's there's a glue, a, a, a system behind it." And this idea of actually giving you the process for improvement, whoever you are and wherever you're starting with your swimming. So, you know, that's something that we've worked very, very hard on over the years. And, and we hope, you know, that uh, with people's very, very kind support and, and we do really appreciate everyone's feedback on, on these sort of things, that um, the combination of that content, like you say, that those processes with a better engine running in the background, um, you know, more t- better technology, et cetera, it's, it's only going to go from strength to strength. So it's exciting and uh, I love working on it of course yeah perfect uh, final call to action for the listeners of course go and listen to the previous uh, interview that we did that was a two-part uh, episode i mean uh, in two in episodes 132 and 133 so that's where we talked a lot about training structure etc and and paul uh, just uh, finally where can the the listeners find you online and uh, and elsewhere yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the main website, swimsmooth.com. Uh, we've mentioned a lot today about swimtypes.com. So it's a little micro site that we have. The guru itself is located at swimsmooth.guru, but you'll find both of those things through the direct swimsmooth.com. You can follow us on uh, on Instagram, just simply uh, swimsmooth, and also on Twitter, swimsmooth, and uh, and also on Facebook there as well. So uh, yeah, we do love to hear from people. If you've got any questions or queries, flick them through to us and um, look forward to, uh, to hearing from you. And hopefully you've listened to something there today, which will maybe just uh, you know strike a chord with you, or maybe if it's not with yourself, with somebody that you swim with, or somebody that you coach, and uh, hopefully helps them to to improve. And you know, ultimately, that's what we're just trying to do with with everything that we do with swim swim smooth is just trying to. You know, I feel very fortunate that I've had this experience and been in this position to coach so many people over the years and um, be able to share that experience. Is, there's nothing better than that. So uh, I do really hope uh, that we, that we've helped you with your swimming today. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Paul. It was a pleasure having you on again. Thanks very much, Michael. Hope you enjoyed that long chat, as uh, I'm sure you noticed that both uh, myself and Paul enjoyed having this discussion. Uh, You can find the show notes and go and reread all of these things that we talked about on thattriathlonshow.com or go directly to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash TTS188. 
I'll link to the related episodes that we have. So, of course, the previous interviews with Paul, which are called Swim Training Structure, The Swim Smooth Way with Paul Newsom, Parts 1 and 2. And that those were episodes 132 and 33. And also a reminder that I have different topic pages on the website where I collect all the different categories of uh, of topics, I guess, that I cover on the podcast. So swimming would be one such topic. And I'll link to that as well on the show notes page and in the episode description here. You can also find it in the menu bar on scientificdraftlon.com. Just go to the menu item more and then popular topics and then swimming. Thank you to everybody who's left ratings and reviews. As I've been asking for, uh, I want to give a shout out this week to Terzo Guido in the United States who left a review saying, the endurance podcast I've been looking for five stars. I have listened to many cycling, triathlon and endurance sports podcasts over the years and that triathlon show is my favorite by far. I've been binge listening for weeks. Great for triathlete fans of Trainer Roads Ask a Cycling Coach podcast, which I also recommend. It's scientific-focused content, but not overly dry. Thank you so much, uh, Terzo, for this. I really appreciate it. And uh, as an editor's note, I also definitely recommend Trainer Road's Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. It's, it's one of those podcasts that I listen to every single week. And uh, I really hope that if you are a long-time listener, that you can take just a moment to leave a rating and review like Terzo did here. Because without these ratings and reviews, the podcast's growth inevitably will stall. And that means all sorts of difficult questions that I have to ask myself regarding whether or not all the time spent creating the podcast is really justifiable. So so I hope that we can keep growing and keep improving and the ratings and reviews really are a critical part of that. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors that are also, of course, a critical part of the podcast sustainability. First, we have Roka that you can find on roka.com and you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. And thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Remember to check out that blog post that I linked to in the episode description on whether hydration should change as you get older. And remember that you can get your first box or tube for free with the promo code thattriathlonshow, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>